Welcome to the second episode of the Revolving Doors podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Revolving Doors is a charity that aims to break the cycle of crisis and crime for individuals who have repeat contact with the criminal justice system. My name is Anna Henry and I'm the Director of Policy. In our first episode, we explored the history of the Lead Bureau. And now on this second episode, we're going to discuss why their model of police-assisted diversion is so important. And to do that, I'm delighted to welcome Dana Owens and Logan Hunt. Great to have you here. Can you tell us a bit about what LEAD's objectives are and why they're so important? Oh, okay. I, I don't mind getting started. Um, first of all, I would like to say um, I was born and raised in Seattle, so I was a part of that 8% of folks who were um, African-American descent. And um, lots of my family were a part of that 65% that were um, being arrested at the time. To think back to that and to think about where we're at now currently and the objectives of LEAD is pretty extraordinary. And um, so when I think about the objectives, I think about uh, really thinking about the policy and the policy changes that this initiative really does when it goes through thinking about the laws that have been created, um, some of the policies that have been created that really impact certain populations of folks. And when I think of those folks, those folks um, include the people that are struggling with mental health, people that are um, in poor, um, low-income environments, people that are dealing with um, substance disorders. And those folks are the, are the people that um, sometimes become invisible to us. And so this gives us an opportunity to make them visible, right? It gives us an opportunity to think about those folks and how do we truly handle those folks. And so when I think about the, the LEAD initiative in general, I think about it being a public health approach, really thinking about it, instead of arresting folks and continuing to arrest folks, maybe we can think about, oh, maybe we'll divert them in ser- to, into services. And if the services are not there, this initiative gives us an opportunity to revisit and think about that. What services are in our community? If they're not, how do we get them there? So uh, I'm very excited about thinking about where what some of the objectives are. I love uh, uh, my role in the LEAD initiative at the time was case manager. And what I loved about being a case manager is that it was boots on the ground, so we met folks exactly where they were at. It was non-coercive, so they were able to volunteer. It was really thinking about stages of change. Um, it also gave us a t- an opportunity to really think about having these relationships with folks that was pure. Because at the very beginning, when we started having conversation with them, it was about the relationship. And to us, the relationship is the intervention, but it's also the resource. So with that, um, we were able to really get into the minds and the souls and the hearts of those, of those people. And we were able to ask them and find out their why and start establishing goals and thinking about what that truly looked like. So this, uh, this, uh, there's so many objectives to this initiative, uh, but for me, those are the ones that really stand out. And can you describe kind of how it works? So as you say, you, you've been a case manager. You, you both have experience of, of, of playing that role. How does it work for an individual that has come into contact with, with the police uh, on the street? What happens? So the diversion, um, it's just a totally new and different thing, and it's especially different for the participants who are going through it because they've experienced so many arrests, and that's sort of the norm. So all of a sudden, you know, an officer 
encounters this individual and they say, we're not going to arrest you today. Today is not the day. We've done this so many times and it hasn't worked. So let's try and do something different. And so at that point, um, the officer has this ability to be able to call a lead case manager. And that lead case manager within 15 minutes is able to respond in real time on the street with the officer, with the individual. And so they're there. They're on the corner of 3rd and Pike. They're meeting them at the precinct. And we all three kind of huddle. And we talk about, you know, why they got picked up and, and what the situation was at the time. And the officer kind of explains that. And then the lead case manager, you know, um, is able to say, all right, this is me. This is my role. And this is how we're going to do things differently. You're not going to get rested today. And kind of explain a little bit about harm reduction, explain that this is non-coercive, like Dana said, that they don't have to be clean and sober to be in the lead program. And that's really important part of that first initial conversation, because we know that our participants and the folks that we work with have talked to every social worker out there, every pretrial person. They've encountered them all, and they've all told them, in order for you to get this, in order for you to be able to do a thing, you have to first be clean and sober. So be it resolve their cases, be it get into housing, be it get in, you know, social services. The expectation for them constantly is that you have to be sober. And so that is why that message is so important because we know we have to just meet, like what Dana said, we have to meet folks exactly where they are. And that's physically as well as just like emotionally and where they are in their own stages of change. And so honestly, our participants, when they hear that, they're kind of a little like taken aback, like, wait a second, you're not going to like tell me to do something in order for me to be able to work with you. So already, even just with that initial conversation, we're kind of starting that relationship piece. You know, again, it's that trust that trust part that's going to be hard fought. You know, there's no reason why this person should trust me. I'm just some person. I'm just another social worker. And so we start that kind of journey now of developing that trust and rapport and that relationship piece. Our participants, we know as uh, clinicians and as social workers have been kicked out of families They've been booted out of all kinds of social service agencies. You know, they've burned a lot of bridges. That's a term we hear a lot in the social work field. Oh, they burned a lot of bridges. Well, that's because they were in a a system that wasn't actually designed to serve them. People describe our participants as service-resistant clients, but really these are client-resistant services, And they have fallen through every single crack out there. You know, they're not only just churning in and out of the criminal legal system, but they've been churned out of every social service system that just doesn't work or isn't designed for them. So all of a sudden now you've got this case manager out on the street with them telling them, hey, we're going to just we're going to be here for you. And this is what this looks like. And it's a journey. So what Dana and I have to do is the proof is in the pudding, right? 
So now, because we're a street-based approach, so we're not going to expect our participants to come and meet us at an office at 2 p.m. because there's all kinds of reasons why they might not be able to actually do that. So Dana and I actually go out on the street. We are out where they are. So that's we're in kind of funky spaces like alleyways and, you know, the proverbial under the bridge and kind of where people are. And we work a lot with case managers that have to go into some some pretty interesting spaces in order to be able to do that. But we always do it in a safe way. But over time, you know, what you find and what I love is that, you know, I'll walk down to Pioneer Square where I know I'm going to see my participants and I don't have any expectations of them. I'm not there to ask them to do anything. I'm really just there to be like, hey, I'm just checking in, seeing how you're doing. And honestly, they'll always look back at me and be like, you came all the way down here just to see me? It's, they can't believe it. They can't believe that that's what's actually happening right now because that's never happened before. And that's where that kind of like, oh, okay, you're the real deal. Like you are not just talk. You're actually out here to see me in this crazy environment that's going on where there's a lot of activity. I was going to say too, my, my, the way I came into Lee was a little bit different because I came in when it was COVID at the very beginning and the community and some of the resources and the service providers were shut down. So for us, it was much more of like a community approach. And it was more like this community was like, we don't want to continue to see these folks arrested. We understand that they're still utilizing our parks because there's nowhere, nowhere else for them to go. Is there something out there that's different? And that's when Lee stepped in. And when I stepped in as a case manager, it was uh, with the police officers at the time, basically doing social contacts. And they were, they knew the people in their community. They knew the people that were struggling in their community. So basically we met them and we're like, who are the folks? And so they were the ones that sat back and said, here are the folks we would love it for you to start working with. And so we went up to them and we gave them an option. And at the time we had hotels that were not being utilized. So we were, um, our fearlessly leader, Lisa, was able to go around and really think about, okay, we have hotels that are not being utilized. Is there a way that we can get a bank of rooms and start housing folks? And so we basically started housing folks. And then we started doing case management right there in the hotel. So that was a little bit different. But with that, it meant that it was what we noticed and what I think we learned from that was that it was an opportunity to really stabilize folks, really thinking about, oh, okay, what are their needs? Are they able to get into assisted living? Are they ready to be housed in their own apartments? What does that look like for them? Where are they at in this stage of change, right? So uh, for for both of us, we kind of came into the lead um, initiative at different times. And then there's also this thing that I love about Lee, the ever-evolving of it, um, really looking at how it's just evolving into this, from police being the uh, gatekeepers, now thinking about how do we allow community to do more of that kind of work. And you, you mentioned the phrase harm reduction as part of your model, as an important part of your model. Can you explain a bit what that means and, and, and give some examples of it in practice? Yeah, I mean, harm reduction we always say harm reduction is really meeting folks exactly where they are. So like I said, we're meeting them out physically where they are. 
And then we're also meeting them where they are in their own like stages of change or their own sort of where they are behaviorally and where they feel they want to go. And then we also you know, collaborate with participants on kind of all the public health approaches to harm reduction as well. You know, I always say with my participants or folks that I've worked with, you know, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. I just want to help you live the safest life that you possibly can. So that's kind of like that kind of top tier where when our participants, they're not really ready to stop using and they know that there are things that they want to try and do and have ideas about how they can use in a safe way. And so we just really collaborate with them on what those strategies are and what would actually work for them. So we are always working with folks because they have the answers. They know their life. They're the expert in their life. I'm not the expert in your life or what you experience on an hourly basis and sort of what you have to encounter and go through. There's no way I'm going to ever understand it. I'd be a pile of mush if I even tried. Um, So we really come from that very person-centered approach and also resiliency and just folks' ability, you know, that they have so many abilities and what they're um, able to do. And so just collaborating with them and supporting them and figuring out how to do that the best way possible and then linking them with those resources when they're out there and available. And then the other harm reduction piece, like we said, is um, really working with them on their own like stages of change and really getting through what they value and what's most important to them to establish what they're willing and able to actually work on and and work through. And it's one of the things that's really awesome to kind of take the time to look at, too, is um, when you think of harm reduction, sometimes we forget how harm has uh, impacted certain communities and how they utilize services and those kind of things. So really taking the time to build that relationship and thinking about who they are individually, but also thinking about what is this? What does this mean to them? Why why aren't they showing up to to the jail system or a court? Why aren't they going to the doctor? How do I reduce the harm? And then also, how do I how do I? And one of the things I love about LEAD is that it's not just that individual impact. It's a systematic impact, right? It's really thinking about how is this service harming our folks that are visiting it every day? And if I see that it's harming folks, how do I make sure to let that service know? How do I let my other other folks know? And how do we make sure that it's less harmful for those folks, too? So um, I just think about when it, it really stopping and thinking about harm reduction is really to really thinking about how has it impacted folks and um, in good ways and bad ways, right, and how it really impacts folks as we move forward. And when you think about the positive effect that LEAD has, are there particular individuals that spring to mind, any people that you've met who you have really changed their lives? Oh, yes. I think of a, um, a guy, and when I first met him, he was a tall uh, gentleman, and um, his face, uh, he had dirt on his face, and um, he looked at me, and I was like, whoa, what's up? What's your name? And he's like, my name is Goatman. And I was like, Goatman? I said, what? Goatman, you got to tell me about that. And, I, and I'll never forget him explaining to me it's because he had a goat 
that his girlfriend had at her house, and it was his pet goat. As we went on, um, we were like, Goatman um, and I established this very um, honest and pure relationship without judgment, right? For the first time, there was no one asking him to go through treatment. It was no one asking him to stop drinking. It was just someone being with him and saying, hey, I hear you're, you're doing really wonderful with your medical appointments, and now you're realizing that there's something might be wrong with your heart. How do I support you in that? It wasn't me stopping and saying, stop drinking. It was like, you're working on something. How do I continue to work with that? So you built a trust with me so we can move forward in that. So Goldman ended up uh, (laughs) going to, first he was like, I'm not going to treatment, and I'll never forget this for two months. He talked to everyone, I'm not going to treatment. And one day he fell off one of our, our public transportation buses. And he came into the hotel, and his face was all scratched up. And I just sat there, and he looked at me and said, I don't want to talk about it. And he walked to his room. And I just waited because I'm in the lobby. And the next morning he came out and he's like, Dana, I think I'm going to stop drinking. And I said, oh, okay, how are you going to do that? He said, I'm just going to go cold turkey. (laughs) And if you know anything about alcohol, you know that you can die if you go cold turkey, if you've been on it for a long period of time. So I said, well, is there any way that I can help you with that? And at the time we had a doctor that was working with our folks. And um, he ended up deciding that he was going to taper. And it went good for one week, and then he started using alcohol again. This time, when he was using alcohol, other things started happening with him. Um, He was also one of the neighborhood flyers, which is a group of folks (laughs) that uh, have a a sign that says, I need money. And so he was like, Dana, I'm going to go fly today because I need beer. And one day he came back in and he says, Dana, I want treatment. And um, this is the first time in five years he wanted treatment. So we set up an assessment, and if you know anything about uh, the United States system, nothing moves fast. And so through, through this waiting period, as a case manager, that's the key point, key moment where you really believe, where you really see that the relationship is the resource, because it was constantly having the conversations, constantly hitting base, constantly hearing about his goat, constantly hearing about what made him human. And and for the first time, he had someone to talk to, someone that was not going to judge him. And then he opened up about being a Baptist minister's son. He talked about the judgment around that, and he talked about how he sat with that. And then it took us about four weeks before we got him into treatment. He went into treatment, and when he was in treatment, we realized that he could get housing for a disability. So we started the process while he was in treatment to get him housing, thinking about the transition when he came out. Um, and he ended up getting housing, but he, he decided he was going to go back to drinking. And when you know anything about stages of change, you realize there's relapse. And then there's this piece that I don't think that we really stop to think about. What is a good life for an individual? What does that truly mean? And to him, a good life is I have a place to call home. I'll drink, but I'm not out on the street. I have my own place where I can have my beer. I can go in there and I'm no problem to anybody. I'm not being arrested. I'm not in the local Starbucks. I have a place of my own. And that was success for him. Mm -hmm. And that was success for our community. You mentioned five years, five years plus. For a caseworker, is the, are there restrictions on what you can do? Um, is there a time period that you can work with somebody? 
Yeah, what really makes this model of case management um, different from traditional case management and social work is that there's really no back door. So there's no graduation period. It's voluntary. So so long as someone wants to be in the LEAD program, they can be in the LEAD program. And we can work with them for as long as they want to be, you know, with us and get case management. Um, we really kind of follow that recovery model where we know that people could be doing really well. Even for years, they could be doing extremely well or whatever you want to call well is. And that at any given time, the, wool, the rug can get pulled out from underneath you and, and you could just fall out. Maybe that's relapse. Maybe you are not able to pay rent. Maybe you lost your job. Whatever happens, we are there, and that individual can still get case management from us so we can at least um, kind of catch them before it all falls apart because it almost always does because that's life. We all experience that. We all go through bad times, and we all need help and support. And so too often what happens is, is that folks – they get into a program and, and they're in it for three or four months and then they graduate because they're seemingly stable. And then they feel like because they've gone through that graduation process that, they're, that that's the success and that's the end, that they can't go back when they need it because then they will be thought of as a failure. So we really want to avoid anyone ever feeling like that, like just making it very clear that so long as you want this, we're here for you. Sometimes that is we're working with people and we're actually talking to them and seeing them and intensively working with them every day, be it on the phone, be it on outreach, be it, you know, taking them to the doctor's appointment, taking them to DSHS to work on getting services, whatever it may be. Sometimes we're just outreaching and we're just doing some light touches with folks because maybe they're just not quite ready to work on any like specific goals, but that's okay. You don't have to. I can just go out and see you and say, I am here. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about when you're ready to talk about it. And then there's times where folks are pretty stable. Maybe we got them into housing. And so then we can do those housing visits or I would take a participant and we would go do yoga together. So I go pick her up at her house and then we go into a yoga class once a week. And that was our time together. Or we would go out to lunch. And so it had nothing to do with case management. We would just talk about life. All of a sudden, she had a person that she trusted who wasn't going to talk about kind of all the chaos in the world and all the things that she normally has to deal with and talk about. But we're just going to talk about life and what's going on for you, just like any normal person would. So there's different levels of how we work with folks. And um, so I feel like that that is one of the most brilliant parts about this initiative Mm -hmm. is that we're able to do that long-term intensive case management piece. Yeah. And what you do is is so radically different to the way in in which the police interact with communities. How how did you persuade them to be part of this approach? Uh, Mine was a a little different, but... uh, but I know that the police officers that we were working with at the time were already wanting another approach. They wanted another tool. They wanted something to do besides arrest. Um, and then there was a group of police officers, 
police officers that they were working with that did not want, they just wanted to do the arrest. So for us, I think the success came when they saw the action, when they saw the folks no longer hanging out on the street corner, when they saw that Goatman was cleaned up and they couldn't recognize who he was, when they saw, and they would, the other piece that is beautiful about this initiative is that they, the police officers are able to complete the loop with us. They're able to hear how a person is doing that they referred in to lead. They're able to hear about their progress. They're able to hear if they have a job. They, they're able to hear if they have housing. They are able to hear what's happening with that person, person positive or negatively. And I think that that is kind of where the buy-in comes in. But the other thing I just, and I think back to um, when we had a um, a participant that was housed with us and he could no longer be housed with us because of some of, the, of his behaviors at the hotel. And the first person I called was the police officer who had referred him in. And I said to him, I said, I, I can't do this alone. He knows me as his case manager, but he knows you as the police officer, but also his friend in the community. Can you come and do this with me? And he did. And both of us went to the door. Both of us explained to him what had happened, the process, but he was still continue to be a part of lead. He would still get case management. And this police officer, when we finally got him all packed up and we were ready to go, the police officer said something to him that I will never forget. He looked at him because he saw that he was struggling. He said, what do you need? And that's the first time in a long time I've ever, even for me, I think ever, heard a police officer ask, what do you need? And the, and the answer was, I don't have gas in my car. And the police officer pulled out $10 out of his wallet and gave it to the participant. And when he did that, the participant was like, okay, I can move forward. But then there was this piece where you saw the, the, you see the police officer doing a job that I think that police officers are here to do, and that is serve our public. And also, I think it's also they go into this work wanting to help folks. And I saw that in his face, that he could, at this time could help a group of folks, especially this individual, to kind of continue to move forward. And so that was some of the approaches or some of the things that we saw that really created buy-in because they knew that the case managers were there in a different way and they knew that they would see us out on the on the streets and they also knew that this person had us for a long period of time. And who else do you need on board in order for the model to work? It affects the whole community and there's a whole system around these individuals. How do you bring all of these different participants together? Another kind of unique aspect of LEAD is this amazing collaborative approach. So it's not owned by one entity. So law enforcement doesn't just run it or social service agency doesn't just own or run it. We actually all work together in order to get everyone out of their silos. So ordinarily, law enforcement's over here doing their thing and case managers are over here doing their thing and prosecutors are over here doing their elusive thing and we never get to talk to them. So all of a sudden, we kind of have this um, where we're all actually coming together and sitting at a table together. Um, so the left arm is actually talking to the right arm, and we are all we all know what's going on in one individual's life, as opposed to just everybody kind of working off their own assumptions. 
So this, uh, it's kind of like our structure of LEAD, and we call this coming together the operational work group. And really, so what we do is twice a week we sit down and we have a meeting in order to problem solve together. And, you know, we discuss cases, we discuss individuals, we try and problem solve and figure out how to best advocate for participants moving forward. So for some examples, for instance, you know, maybe I will, as the case manager, come to the table and, you know, my job is to present a very holistic picture of the individual, you know, without lead, law enforcement and prosecutors really only see the four corners of that police report. They just see the tip of the iceberg. They just see the behaviors that are getting that they're arresting for. They don't see anything below the surface, all the trauma, all the um, driving forces that actually lead the person to where they are at that point. And so that's mine and Dana's job is actually bring that to light to bring that holistic whole person to the table so folks can actually really get a true understanding of what they're experiencing and the barriers that they face. And then that way we can all actually come together and figure out how we're going to reduce some of those barriers. And one of those things that, that can happen so easily without this collaboration is that someone could be moving forward and doing and having like moving along their trajectory and their journey in a really positive way. But when law enforcement doesn't know that that's what's going on, then they'll just go and arrest the person. And then it'll interrupt all that momentum and all that hard work. So I might sit down at the table and say, you know, hey, everybody just, you know, checking in on Bobby. He has a housing appointment. We've been working on this housing appointment and getting him into housing for six months now. Or they have, you know, a uh, intake assessment for medication-assisted treatment. In this way, you know, we know that Bobby is still potentially using and he's still at high risk for um, being arrested. But, you know, the officer, when they encounter them on the street on 3rd and Pike before their housing appointment might say, hey, I heard you have a housing appointment coming up. And so instead of arresting them, they might say, hey, how about if I call Logan, your case manager, and she's going to come down here and meet with you. Or even just encouraging them on what's actually going on in their life because they're privy to this information. And likewise with prosecution, you know, prosecutors also have discretion to um, continue cases or hold on to cases. A lot of our folks have what we call legacy cases. And we also know that they're probably going to still pick up new charges because, as we know, change doesn't happen overnight. And so same behaviors are probably going to be going on over time. So we can sit at that table and I can talk to the prosecutor about what goals and what folks are working on. And that prosecutor has the discretion to be able to hold on to that case or just kind of let it sit there as we work through it and give the person space and time to actually achieve some of those goals. And, and then in the end, we can actually resolve the case and hopefully we can do it in a way where it doesn't include more jail time, you know, which would defeat a lot of the purpose. So those are some of the um, ways in which we all collaborate and sit down at the table together in order to actually advocate for our participants. And what's amazing about your model is how flexible you are, how you adapt 
to the individual circumstance and you go with them, you meet them where they are, as you say. Is it easy to kind of measure your impact because of that? Do you, do you look at, you know, the statistics or do you collect case studies? How do you see that you're having an impact and a, and a positive uh, impact on individuals? I think when we're working with folk or working with sites, we really encourage them to collaborate with universities and partners to kind of collect that data. Originally, we did a random control trial, but we definitely don't encourage folks to do that because that would include not getting them into services. So I think a lot of sites do kind of a before and after. So here's an individual, and this was how many times that they were arrested before they got into lead. And this is how many times maybe they are getting arrested now. Or how many times someone went into emergency care and utilized these uh, emergency services, you know, pre-lead. It could have been hundreds of times because in the United States, oftentimes emergency uh, care is, is their primary care. And then how often people might not be utilizing those services after. And so kind of measuring out a lot of the high utilizer and just like quality of life and how people are doing as far as quality of life. We also measure, I think people also measure uh, recidivism rates. So I don't know if you have anything else to add to that as well. I I was just thinking about, um, we had an uh, evaluator from the University of Washington who uh, came in and um, they did something that I thought was wonderful, and that was that they asked, they had a survey um, that they asked the participants at the very beginning their needs, their concerns, how did, what were they thinking of the program in the first couple of weeks. And then they revisit those uh, same group of participants about three to four months later. And so they was able to see and hear from those participants on how they were doing, what changes they wanted to see um, when it came to case management styles, where they were living, how the community was serving them or not. Those kind of things came up, and also the quality of life, right? Uh, do they think their quality, quality of life was different? So it was really good for us to hear from them because I think sometimes we uh, go into a situation and um, we forget to ask the people that we're serving, how is this working for you? And so this was an opportunity to really hear how it was working for them. And through that, we were able to do some changes, <laughs> absolutely. And then we were also able to understand what was happening with some of our folks and how to continue to move those same folks forward. Thanks so much. It's been great to hear about your work. And at Revolving Doors, it's been fantastic to welcome you to to the UK uh, to share this learning. So in our next episode, the final episode, we're going to talk a bit about that experience of, of international learning exchange. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and I hope you tune into that final episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.